This is Molten Mall Page, and the song you just heard is entitled again. And the sylvan voice that wrote and sang it belongs to Kelly McFarlane, who also plays the banjo and acoustic guitar. Her superior backing band is as follows. Tim Marcus on pedal steel, electric, and acoustic guitar. Jonathan Kirchner on bass. Andrew Lawbacher on drums and percussion. Mika Dubroil on Hammond organ Fender Rhodes backing vocals. And John Elliott backing vocals. I challenge you to listen to that song again without it bringing tears to your eyes. Resilience and persistence are two of the most important qualities for us earthlings to develop. This is Walt my page. Music creator for Booksmart with Douglas Day. After we hear Mr. Ross's audio play, Kelly and her band will be back with their song, Lost Boy, which will play out the show. Kelly and her bandmates are currently based in San Francisco. What a voice. What a tight band. Now it's time to welcome the host of our show, Mr. Douglas Day. Thank you, Mortimer. And thanks to Kelly McFarlane and her band. Today's episode kicks off season two of Book Smile with Douglas Day. The guts of this season, as Mortimer alluded to, will revolve around Mr. Christopher Ross's audio play, in which he will tell the tale of the Croton Aqueduct, completed in the year 1842. Tell us a tad more, Mr. Ross. Why does its construction captivate you so? Hey, Douglas. Well... It's important to realize that um, due to the lack of fresh water supply at the time in the 1800s, early 1800s, the city of Manhattan was perched between pestilence and conflagration. A cholera epidemic had taken out 3,500 people, and there were fires that could not be put out without a reliable water supply. They said that you could smell Manhattan before you could see it from land and sea because it was so filthy. Mmm. Mmm. Go on. So a plan was hatched to bring fresh water to um, the city from the dammed up Croton River 41 miles away north of the city. Most people thought it was an impossible task. So these engineers, the leader of whom was named John B. Jervis, who I'll get to later in the audio play. Um, But these guys were looked at like astronauts. Nobody thought they could do it. Nobody thought they could build this aqueduct that spanned 41 miles along the Hudson River down into midtown Manhattan. Um, But as I said, you'll hear more about that in the audio play. Indeed. Sounds serious, Mr. Ross. It was serious. Yes, Nigel. You have a call, sir. Line six, sir. Douglas Day. The man... With a hat. Yes, it's true. I wore a hat in Oxford. I wore a hat. That's true. Ah, you have another call, sir. Line nine, sir. Douglas Day. Douglas Day. Need anything from the shop? Thank you. Um, an elderberry tea, please. Anything else? Nigel, anything. Mr. Ross, anything. A cinnamon scone, sir. Mr. Ross, how about a, uh, some pecan twirls? Righto. Three elderberry teas, a cinnamon scone, and a pecan twirl. 
Next up, a poem from Nigel Lewis Stevenson. From your Oxford series, Nigel? Yes, sir. Toxicology Forum, sir. Hmm. Sounds serious. Whenever you're ready, Nigel, yam on. Thank you, sir. This is a poem by Nigel, entitled Toxicology Forum. It's divided up into 15 short stanzas. Each stanza represents a patient. I'll read patient one, two, and three. God was manifest in the flesh in the midst of death. We are in life in the midst of life. We are in death in the midst of life. Death in we are the life, death, life, live, life, live, death, life, live, death. We midst are our dar door or like tyke name him Joseph. Patient number two. In the life of life, we are in life, not living, not liking, but living nonetheless in the midst of midlands, dinlands, din, dins, dun, duns, din. In the middle of what was not, what was never was, what not, what was not. In the midst of not, not, pot, put, put, pot, not, not. Patient number three. He loved me, we were close, we were closely intertwined. He loved me, we were close, we were feeling very fine. He loved me, then dubbed me. None other than his own. He loved me. He loved me. Thank you, Nigel Lewis Stevenson. You're welcome, sir. Mr. Ross, what did you think of Nigel's poetry? I liked it. I always liked Nigel's poetry. I especially like how he divided it up into uh, patients, number of patients. Indeed. One is almost afraid to ask Nigel, but how many patients are there in Toxicology Forum? Fifteen, sir. Oh, goody, we look forward to hearing more. Thank you, sir. Before I forget, this show is inspired by Al Crowther's The Twelve Steps to Natural Gardening. It's about the health of the soil, people, banned chemical pesticides and fertilizers. Healthy organic soil can sequester carbon, people, and help to reverse the greenhouse effect. Mr. Crowther's The Twelve Steps to Natural Gardening can guide you on your way. This program is also inspired by Nutra-Self. Be who you always wanted to be. Feel like you've always wanted to feel with Nutra-Self. Whenever you're ready, Mr. Ross, yam on. Thanks, Douglas. The audio play The Keeper's House based on the building of the Croton Aqueduct in 1842. Act 1, Scene 1, Dobbs Ferry, New York, present day, 11.50 a.m. Camera pans exterior of sushi restaurant on Main Street. Close-up of bell that rings when the door is open. Camera enters and pans room. Close-up on waving kitty doll. Close-up on goldfish and aquarium. No diners, but it is early yet. An Asian woman clears a lunch table of its dishes. Camera pans to a close-up of a Bengal tiger tattoo wrapped around the back of her neck. Asian woman, can I help you? Camera person, uh, there was a guy just sitting here? Was there a guy just sitting here? Yes, he's in the bathroom, he's coming out now. You come out of the bathroom, thank the woman, grab a toothpick and head toward the door. Asian woman, thank you, sir. You, thank you, and don't forget what we talked about. Gotta figure out a way to cut back on that plastic. Asian woman, okay, sir. I talk to owner. Camera follows you out the door of the sushi restaurant. You stop, put on sunglasses, sniff the air, and proceed down sidewalk to the left. The idea, you say, is for sushi restaurants to stop using so much plastic. 
If you bring your own container, you are rewarded with an extra half roll of your choosing. You walk on in silence. Camera pans the view of the river, the Hudson River, down below. The early October day is sunny and lambent. You stop halfway down the steep hill underneath the drain pipe that juts out of a stone retaining wall about 10 feet above the sidewalk. You say, I heard tell one can get a decent shower here, and during the cruel months of winter, one can catch a load of hot porridge out the same chute. Cut scene. Indigent man showers behind a makeshift curtain underneath the drain pipe and suds his hair up like a duck's. Another indigent man stands in line, says, Hurry yourself up, Hiram. We don't got from here to eternity, and some of us got the heebie-jeebies. Hiram extracts his head from the stream of water and shakes it vigorously. Hold your horses there, Cookie. All is well that ends well. Just give me one more second and the stall is yours. Cut scene. A wintry day. Cookie stands underneath downspout. His hands palm the rock wall. His head is flung back, and his mouth open wide to receive a gush of steaming porridge. Cut scene. Camera continues to follow you over small bridge above the railroad tracks. You stop and nod toward a park, lining the shore. Camera follows you in slow-mo as you cross through the park and enter the woods lining the Hudson River. You come to a small opening in the woods. You see a faint spiral of gray smoke rising up through the air. You continue moving towards the campfire that produces it. Two shanties constructed of scavenged construction material sit facing west towards the river. The shacks are ten or so yards apart, and each has a front door and a front window. In between the two shacks sits a campfire surrounded by a circle of rocks. The shanty to the north boasts a wooden window box, also scavenged. It is filled with late-blooming zinnias. An old man and woman, known as the Old Timer and Miss Kitty, sit on upturned oak logs next to the campfire. A cribbage board, suspended on four wooden legs, rests between them. Upon your entrance stage right, the Old Timer shifts his gaze from the river and motions you with his pipe around the side of the shack where you retrieve two lawn chairs upon which to sit. Miss Kitty cradles a petite mackerel tabby on her lap. Her bare feet are suspended close to the fire's edge. In front of her chair rests her pair of sheep wool moccasins. The old timer continues his monologue. Out of history, wrapped up in these parts, yes sir. It behooves oneself to know the history of the place one calls home. I had a pappy who loved history, American history especially. Why? Because this grand experiment just barely came to fruition, God dang it. If it weren't for the French, the Americans would have been left with a, a thin spit of ground on the East Coast, and the Brits would have occupied the middle of the country, plus Canada. But it were the French that helped save our skins. Next time you drizzle syrup on a wedge of French toast or dip your French fry into a bucket of catsup, Say a prayer of gratitude to those Frenchies who bailed us out. People get all bent out of shape about France and say they still owe us for the desperately needed help during World War II. Well, so be it, but let me make myself very clear. In the fall of 1781, our ragtag Continental Army was on its very last legs. The glorious days of the Declaration of Independence was five years in the mirror, and our boys were tired. 
naked and starving, and our own Continental Congress couldn't raise the capital to fund General George Washington's efforts. It had to take that portly fellow, uh, uh, the printer from Philadelphia who struck a kite with lightning. Why, why, I'll be, I must be slipping. The portly fellow who, who loved to get his feedback on. Dear, dear, who was it, dear? Benjamin Franklin, dear? That's it. He was the fellow who wowed the French at Versailles, who convinced them that the American experiment was not a lost cause. Nay, there had been victories. I hand it to Mr. Franklin, I really do. Whatever faults and flaws he may have had, his penchant for wine, women, and song, his insatiable appetite for savories and sweets. Well, the old-timer waves his pipe out in in a generous circle. Fact is, the first thing Washington did when he got here to Dobbs Ferry was to build a high redoubt up above the river up there where them condominiums sit. But that portly printer from Philadelphia had the ear of the French in the Palace of Versailles. And when he told the French that Lafayette had routed the Brits out of so-and-so, well, that changed the tune of Admiral de Grasse's whistle, holed up as he was with his six battleships in the Caribbean. Yes, sir. When he heard the ragtag Americans had enjoyed a small victory, he wrote the most important message of the war to reach the eyes of Washington right cheer in Dobbs Ferry on August 14, 1781. It read something like, We will proceed with our ships to block Cornwallis from the sea in Yorktown, Virginia. That's right. What wonderful news. Washington and Rochambeau. We're not keen on attacking the Redcoats in Manhattan anyway. So the great general took a chance, and he and Rochambeau and 10,000 men fainted north from Dobbs Ferry, crossed the Hudson at Verplank, made as if they were headed to Manhattan Way, but streaked on down south to Virginia instead, 415-mile forced march. By the time the Redcoats and Manhattan got wind of it, they were too late to catch Washington's army, who promptly hemmed Cornwallis in in Yorktown, effectively, effectively ending the war. Yes, sir. Cornwallis surrendered on October 19, 1781. May 14, 1783 marked the day the British troops were evacuated from Westchester County, and on November 25th, they finally left New York City for good. You. Brilliant. Old-timer. You bet your bottom dollar it's brilliant. It's history with a capital H, mister. We got a lot more to thank the French for than just French fries, French toast, and lemon meringue pie, I'll tell ya. Hey-ho, here, here come the Widow Dornberger. I'm all wound up about something. The Widow Dornberger and picks her away carefully over the rocks that line the shore. At the pawpaw tree, she turns east. Schleps up the hill through a copse of walnut trees just below the sheds. Foraged plants and herbs protrude from a basket she carries on her back. She squats and loosens her shoulder straps and places the harvest basket on the ground beside her. The Widow Dornberger Tonight shall be a bloomin', my pretties. Tonight she'll bloom, my night-blooming serious governor. Tonight she blooms. Cut to nighttime. Interior of Widow Dornberger's next to the river. The shack is dimmed and warmed by a small kerosene stove. A small scavenged sink that draws its water from a rain receptacle on the roof empties out into a small pond outside of the shack. 
From the four rafters hang dried and drying chives and peppermint, licorice root, anise hyssop, and sweet goldenrod. The old-timer and Miss Kitty and ourselves sit in four scavenged recliners, our feet facing a locust pole and supports her makeshift roof. The widow Dornberger serves us steaming hot mugs of elderberry tea sweetened with honey and molasses. The vaunted night-blooming Sirius hangs from a hook about six feet up a locust post. Among the plant's dendritic spawn of chaotic green tendrils hangs a bulbous white flower closed in on itself like a fist. The widow Dornberger. Open up your nostrils, comrades, cause she'll be blooming soon. As if on cue, the flower begins to unclasp. Over the course of several minutes, the brilliant white petals reveal a hot pink circular center. The flower's yellow cake stamens jut out into the dimness and release a deep, sweet fragrance that quickly fills the room. The widow Dornberger. Suck it in, comrade. She blooms once every seven years, and it's a doozy. Take a whiff and forget about your troubles. Luxuriate in the rich perfume of this most glorious of tropical plants. Camera pans our faces as we fall back into the comfort of our recliners. The fragrance of the night-blooming Sirius sends us all into astronaut mode. The widow Dornberger puts on a Cole Porter song on an old turntable. After a while of drifting in and out of a pleasant stupor, the widow Dornberger says, Getting kind of funky in here. Let me crank my skylight open. There we go. No reason for us to keep all that pretty smell to ourselves. Let's let the nighttime breathe some of what we got cooking. Through the skylight's opening, you study the nighttime sky. Shortly, the overhanging branches of white pine come into focus. Then, the top branches of a shag bark hickory spread vein-like onto the surface of the rising moon. You imagine what the moon looks like above the river. Your dazed reverie is punctuated by the old-timer who raises his mug and spits, All hail the Sambucus Canadensis! And then, The American Waterways Wind Orchestra! I played the bassoon! And Act One, Scene One. Far off country, and they grow 
wild and they're growing so free in a laid down gazed up from underneath Tree. 